It's Wednesday, September 20th, 2023, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroidi, Senior Product Manager of the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel. Whalen is joined today by Liu Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes weekly about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, Bill, let's start talking about your column this week for California on your mind, in which you describe the state's upcoming bill signing season. Under California state law, Governor Newsom has 30 days after a bill is passed by the legislature to sign it or said bill becomes law. This year, he has until October 14th to act. Uh, You explain that there are four types of bills that Governor Newsom must consider. Uh, Number one, those that are the first ever to be enacted in the country. Two, bills that would put Newsom in a rough spot. And number three, a gag reel that is those that add to California's outrageous reputation in the rest of the country. I, I, I mentioned three bills, but there's also a fourth category that I mentioned, and, and that's for Lee to clarify in a, in a moment, and that is legislation that would head off political trouble. Uh, Bill, can you start off by describing what the Governor Newsom must do uh, to navigate this legislative session? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Jonathan and Lee, um, Newsom has until October 14th to act on just hundreds and hundreds of bills sent by the legislature under California law. If he doesn't uh, sign or veto a bill, uh, doesn't act on it, automatically becomes a law. Uh, This is a problem one year when I worked for Pete Wilson back when he was governor because one of our legislative aides managed to lose. This is back in the primitive day of everything was on paper and you get all these folders of bills. Our uh, ledge aide managed to lose one of the files and we couldn't find it and thought, oh my God, this bill's going to become law. So what do we do? So it literally just we had to uproot the place to find it. But uh, so he has until October 14th to act. So let's kind of quickly breeze through these categories. I don't want to get to Lee's thoughts on a, what I thought was kind of a particularly odious backroom deal on one bill. Uh, the first is nation laws. California governors, they just love to, to flex, as we say in sports. They just love to show off California's pioneering first in the nation status. There are two that I think Newsom is uh, is uh, going to uh, sign. One is the uh, what used to be called the Skittles Law, because what it does is it goes after food additives uh, and candy products, you know, dyes. And uh, this is a very interesting policy uh, to look at because uh, what California is doing, it's banning additives that have already been improved by the have already been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. So there's a very interesting federal and state issue going on here, and I suspect at some point there'll be a lawsuit in that direction. The second one, which he's most certainly going to sign because he's already said he will, and that is a a new climate change mandate for businesses. Businesses in California will now have to report how much carbon they're putting into the sky. And so Newsom, who just loves to talk climate change, will have a victory lap on that. Uh, Category number two is um, what I call bills that put Newsom in kind of a tough spot in which he's trying to weigh the policy merits versus the political implications. And um, I looked at two. One is uh, an excise tax on guns and ammo. You would think that Newsom would automatically do this because he does not care for guns. Uh, He wants to do a constitutional amendment on uh, gun restrictions. But he also is pretty strong about no new taxes. And so if he signs off on this, he's kind of breaking the tax thing. The second one, I would get least thoughts on this. This would be granting unemployment benefits to striking workers in California uh, after being out of a, uh, on the picket line for two weeks. They would get unemployment benefits. And Lee, what would this do to California in particular? It's unemployment insurance fund, which I believe the last time we looked at it is about $18 billion in the red. 
Yeah, Bill, we, uh, we owe the federal government uh, $18 billion. The reason we owe the federal government $18 billion is because we paid out about $32 billion in fraudulent unemployment claims in 2020 under COVID when the, the unemployment department, which runs uh, their business on a 40-year-old mainframe computer uh, that operates with a 70-year-old uh, software called COBOL. Uh, some, some of our listeners may be old enough to remember, to remember what that is. Uh, so because of this enormous fraud, we had to take out a loan from the federal government. Um, we were supposed to repay that. But lo and behold, once we started having some budget difficulties this year, Governor Newsom decided he was going to welch on that debt. And when a state welches on a loan from the federal government to cover a shortfall in their unemployment insurance, the state's businesses have to pick up the tab. Mm -hmm. So our state businesses now have to pay higher, substantially higher unemployment insurance rates because of the state government's mess up, and they're going to have to pay those higher unemployment rates um, for several years until that $18 billion debt is retired. Probably won't be retired for another decade. Now, state lawmakers have decided that those on strike, if the strike lasts for more than two weeks, and I'm going to pretty much guarantee you strikes are going to last for more than two weeks <laughs> going out in California from, you know, right. from here to some of the governor signs that law that they get unemployment insurance. And the simple economics is that this is just a terrible public policy. Unemployment insurance is supposed to be exactly that, it's supposed to be insurance for a person who, through no fault of their own, loses their job because, you know, recessions happen, people lose their jobs. Businesses decide to change their business plan. People lose their jobs because of that. People might lose their jobs for all sorts of reasons other than performance issues. And when a person loses their job for anything other than a performance issue, then they're you know typically eligible for unemployment insurance. It right. wasn't intended. It's a safety net program. It wasn't intended for people who thought, you know what, I think I should be getting paid more. Or I should get another day off per week or or whatever, I'm unhappy with my employment situation, I think I'll go on strike. Unemployment insurance is not intended for that. It's a right. safety net program, this is not safety net. And um, it's really, it's very silly. And it's going to raise costs even more to California businesses, making us even less competitive as a state. Right. Now, the reason why I said this puts news is a tough spot is twofold. One, as Lee alluded to, um, this is fiscal insanity, plain and simple, if you're going to do this to the Unemployment Insurance Fund. But secondly, um, Newsom has done his best. I mean, Newsom at all points wants to make uh, labor happy in California. Uh, it's an underpinning of the democratic existence. But at the same time, California's governor is doing his best not to take sides in the Hollywood strike right now. He does not want to come down as two pro-writers and actors, i.e. pro-labor, uh, because if he does so, then he alienates a lot of studio executives on the west side of Los Angeles who happen to give a lot of money to Democrats. So he's trying to he's trying to have it both ways. And if he signs this bill, this is a pretty strong signal that he sympathizes. In fact, essentially, he um, gave an interview with Politico the other day, and uh, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. Uh, it is just the most dizzying word salad you've ever, you've ever read in terms of him trying to say he's not taking sides, but he understands what the writers are going through. And he spent about five minutes kind of you know sympathizing with what they're doing but at the end of the day says but i don't have an official position so that's that's why it's a tough spot and then jonathan the third category here uh gag reel uh and what i'm looking at in particular is a uh, bill that would um legalize magic mushrooms 
psilocybins in uh, in uh, California. Now, this is a serious issue with, with some people, in particular veterans, who claim that they use uh, psilocybins mushrooms to help ease their stress, their uh, uh, their PTSD. And it's kind of reminiscently, Jonathan, of how the uh, the marijuana legalization argument took shape, and that for years one of the strongest proponents of legalizing uh, was the elderly population who said that marijuana helped with glaucoma. So you have veterans who are uh, influencing um, law enforcement obviously does not care for this because this is just one more form of people in California getting intoxicated, which can only lead to bad things behind the wheel. But I put this in the gag reel category, plain and simple. If the writer's strike ever ends and we go back to late night television and monologues by comedians, just imagine the jokes about California shrooming. So it writes itself. And that takes us into the fourth category. And I'm going to hand this over to Lee. And this is the question of backroom deals and head kind of passing bills to head off um, political trouble at the past. And Lee, that takes us to this year's Assembly Bill 1228 which was a deal between restaurants and unions over the issue of what to do about fast food in California. Lee, explain to me what happened here. Bill, so um, let's go back in time a year or two, and um, a bill was passed that would enormously regulate fast food restaurants in California. This included a politically appointed fast food restaurant management board that would have say over virtually all aspects of labor relations within the fast food industry. Mm-hmm. It would set wages, it would set working conditions. It basically would have the power to define all aspects of the connection and characterize the relationship between the fast food, um, a fast food owner and uh, his or her workers. Well, we then, and this was such, I think, such an egregious power grab, and it was all in the name of trying to get fast food, fast food restaurants to get unionized because Kel Surprise, if you engage in collective bargaining, then that fast food, that fast food political uh, board would no longer, would no longer have to say. It would all be about collective bargaining. Fast food restaurants got together. They put together enough money to get a referendum. The referendum was passed and the bill was put on hold. Um, what happened now is that a new bill comes along, 1228, that gets passed the Assembly and the Senate purely along party line votes. And this was about fast food restaurants essentially caving to a deal that would raise the minimum wage in fast food restaurants to $20 per hour. It would um, maintain this politically appointed board, although the composition of that board would be a little bit different. It would be a little bit friendlier to those um, in the fast running fast food restaurants. Um, but it would no longer give the board the ability to regulate all those other aspects of how a business relates to its workers. So this was, so Bill, you're absolutely right. It was a backroom deal. It was meant, uh, I think fast food restaurants see the writing on the wall. Um, This is simply not a friendly state for businesses. It was going to be a very expensive fight for them. They, I think they knew that wages would be going up. Uh, So I think they saw this, um, as uh, not as a win-win, but as uh, as an avoidance of a potentially very big loss. So what's going to happen is minimum wages in fast food restaurants go up to uh, $20 an hour, unless you're Panera Bread, Bill. Uh, Panera Bread um, does not qualify under this law. Um, and other fast food restaurants that have a, um, quote, significant, unquote, bakery operation are also exempt from this law. Just like AB5, um, which was passed a few years ago that I thought was a terrible, terrible law, 
which essentially makes it illegal for a person who works as an independent contractor, uh, unless you're in an exempt category. Architects weren't in an exempt category. Landscape architects weren't. Um, and again, if a restaurant agrees to get into a collective bargaining arrangement and lets their workers, uh, agrees to have their workers unionized, um, then AB, uh, AB 1228 no longer applies to you. And Bill, what really gets me is that um, when 257, when you know the original overarching uh, big brother, we're going to run the, we're going to run your business for you when it comes to all your labor relations. When that original bill came out, the uh, I think it was Scott Weiner, and I can't recall the other Democrats who uh, who authored the bill. They said, you know, this is all about worker safety. Yes, it's about we want to make sure they get paid a living wage. But, you know, we're hearing terrible stories about working conditions and worker safety. Well, California is up to the hilt in worker safety legislation. It was never about worker safety. And uh, the new bill, AB 1228, that new bill takes out all that language about worker safety and worker conditions. Uh, state legislatures were were happy to ditch that in a New York second. It was never about any of that. This was all about a payoff to unions. Right. So they got their $20 minimum wage. But Lee, I see a trend here. So you mentioned AB5. Um, AB5, um, simplest explanation, AB5 would uh, required ride share companies in California uh, to treat independent contractors, drivers as employees. So Lyft, Uber got together and they pulled enormous resources and fought that thing at the ballot. Uh, here you have now the fast food industry. I think, Lee, they raised something like $100 million, look at he split, at least threatened to spend $100 million, and they collected a million signatures, it seemed like, overnight. So they came to play. But this seems to be problematic in this regard, Lee. How many special interests in California have $100 million to toss around in initiative battle? How many can go out and get a million signatures really fast? In other words, for all the things that go through the legislature, there are only a handful of industries in California that can push back. So, you know, congratulations, fast food industry. You got a compromise. Congratulations, ride shares. You you fought AB5 at the ballot. But there are a lot of interest in California, Lee. They're not going to be able to play this game. Yeah, this is um, – it's really it's – really an insidious death blow to small businesses, because if you're not big enough to play ball, then you're just going to get steamrolled by California state government, potentially by local government. And most businesses simply don't have that kind of money, as you point out, Bill. Yeah, they were able to put together a hundred million dollar war chest. Um, who can do that? You know, very, you know, not many industries can, 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 can do that, much less small businesses. And Bill, what um, you know, what's ironic here is that this is a this is a victory for some politicians, uh, particularly those who get enormous support from unions. But Bill, um, in the fast food industry, employment is not close to being back what to what it was before the pandemic. We are about 20,000 jobs shy of pandemic level employment in that industry. So where did those 20,000 jobs go? This is an industry that's automating like nobody's business. Um, exactly. Artificial intelligence robots are taking over jobs. And the more expensive one makes workers, either through, uh, either through minimum wages or by tacking on implicit taxes of compliance, of dealing with unions, dealing with a politically appointed board, it makes workers less, it makes workers more expensive. And as uh, AI and technology and robots get less and less expensive and get better and better and better, those jobs are simply going to go away. 
Um, and, you know, and again, ironically, Bill, um, when you look at fast food, the fast food industry, turnover is incredibly high. I mean, the big problem that fast food restaurants have is keeping their workers. Right. They are the they want they they want to keep their workers. They they seventy eight percent of fast food restaurant operators in a survey said that recruiting and retaining workers is a top priority, because for the average restaurant in the fast food industry, um, they have a hundred and forty three percent turnover within a year. Um, they do not need another nanny tax that makes it even more expensive to deal with workers. So we're just going to see fewer and fewer people working in those restaurants and more and more machines. Yeah, well put. Bill, let's let's talk about your uh, upcoming column, which will be released uh, next week on September 27th, the same day when GOP presidential hopefuls will take the stage at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley. Uh, as you write in the column, the location of the debate can prompt you to ponder how did California, once a bastion of Reagan conservatism, depart from the Republican Party? Uh, Bill, what exactly created this drift over the past few decades? And can you just can you also describe what issues the candidate should address regarding California? Although it is not a state, any of them will win against a Democratic opponent. Still, in many ways, as California goes, so does the rest of the country. Yeah, it'll be an interesting debate. So it's uh, June 27th, uh, excuse me, September 27th at the Reagan Library. So there'll be Ronald Reagan as a backdrop. Uh, uh, President Trump is not expected to uh, uh, participate. Uh, He has some harsh feelings towards some people who run the Reagan Library. Plus, also, this is being run, I think, by the Fox Business Network. And he has his feud with Fox going on as well. He will, ironically, actually be in Anaheim two days later at the State Party Convention, which we should discuss as well. Um, Plain and simple, what my column uh, went into was uh, looking at Reagan as a California governor. Um, To those who aren't familiar with Ronald Reagan's life story, he was a two-term governor uh, from 1967 to 1975 and then 1980 um, gets elected president. And if you look at his record as um, as governor, he does a few things that would not fly in today's Republican Party in this age of litmus test. Uh, Reagan raised taxes as governor because he walked into a uh, messy budget. He faced a big deficit. He raised taxes to fix the deficit. So in today's Republican parlance, would he not be sufficiently conservative for raising taxes? Ronald Reagan signed the bill uh, legalizing abortion or expanding abortion services in California. So would he be dead on arrival with conservatives for doing that? But abortion is a complicated topic. We should talk about that as well. Um, But the question really um, that and then also the question about uh, will Republicans go along with the Reagan 11th commandment line, if you will. But this is all against the backdrop of how California has just become no man's land for Republicans. Uh, George H.W. Bush, the last uh, Republican to carry California presidential election, he did it by rather scant 3%, so it was hardly a mandate. Since then, it's become uh, blue territory. So the problem here for Republicans, the question is, where do Republicans go adrift? And some people will say, well, California's a pro-choice state, so it's abortion. Uh, some people will say, well, wait a second, it was uh, the immigration issue uh, started by my former boss, Pete Wilson, that alienated Latinos, and that caused the problem. Um, I think it's a compendium of issues. Yes, there has been a uh, problem with Latino voters, and yes, there's been a problem with women voters, uh, not just on abortion, but just kind of general Demeter Trump being the uh, explainer of that. But I think the bigger problem here, Lee and Jonathan, I'd like to get Lee's thoughts on this as well. It's what I call the avatar problem with Republicans. If you walk into a uh, local Democratic office in California. Up on that wall is going to be a picture of Gavin Newsom. There's going to be a picture of Joe Biden. There might be a picture of Kamala Harris. There might be a picture of Barack Obama. There might be a picture of the two Kennedy brothers, for all you know, maybe even Cesar Chavez. You go into a Republican office in California, unless you're lucky enough to have a Republican local official who's elected, whose portrait goes up on the wall. 
George uh, Donald Trump had a problematic relationship with California, and that's being generous. He had the worst performances in California since Alf Landon back in the 1930s. Um, George W. Bush uh, did not really play to win in California as well, so no connection there. You're going back to Ronald Reagan probably, and the problem is Ronald Reagan was last on the ballot in California in 1984, so you're talking about people who are at least 18 years of age, so now they are fast approaching senior citizen status. So it's the avatar problem, plain and simple. If you're a Californian and you're kind of looking to relate to the National Republican Party, to whom do you connect? You connect to Kevin McCarthy. Well, Kevin McCarthy is a product of Bakersfield, California, as Lee can attest. Bakersfield ain't Santa Barbara necessarily. So it's how do the Republicans turn things around in California? And I think it begins plain and simply in Jonathan with finding a national candidate to whom they can relate to. And so watch that debate on the 27th and see if any of those people on the stage you think would play in California. Lee, what do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Republicans still like to... Uh like to channel Ronald Reagan, but I think that's going to become rarer and rarer over time. As you noted, um, Reagan Reagan raised taxes. He raised them twice. Um, he, I think he, he had a very strong set of core principles, but he made decisions and signed bills that he didn't necessarily agree with, uh, but he did it because he thought it was the right thing for the country. And um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, he, uh, we talked before how he would do deals with, uh, with Tip O'Neill. Um, and Tip O'Neill's son wrote a book, um, you know, it might be about 10 years ago now, um, about the relationship between Reagan um, and, uh, and Thomas O'Neill's dad, Tip O'Neill. Right. And it was called Frenemies, a Love Story. Um, and what he described in that book is that they deplored each other's political philosophies and um, they all, but, but what they deplored even more um, was political polarization and partisan politics that wouldn't let the country move forward. Um, and so they forged a commitment to make deals and get things done, even though there was compromise involved. Um, and now compromise has become a dirty word in politics. Um, in the first Republican debate, um, Mike Pence uh, chastised, um, and I'm tra- uh, it, was, it was the issue about what's <clears throat> incredibly difficult for many reasons, the topic of abortion. Right. Pence chastised Nikki Haley, um, who as Republican candidates were falling all over themselves to say who was more pro-life than the other. Pence chastised uh, Haley for saying this is an issue where we have to have some reasonable compromise. And Pence said, well, compromise is not leadership. Yeah, tell that to Ronald Reagan. Re- Reagan was one of the most popular presidents in American history. I believe um, I believe in the 84 election, uh, I believe he won something like um, 500 plus electoral votes. I mean, it was just a complete. I think you have to go back to Alf Landon to get a landslide like that. 49 to 50. It's him and Nixon and FDR in 36. That's kind of the gold standard of landslides. Yeah. Um, and in this book uh, that Tip O'Neill's son wrote, um, O'Neill was, uh, his dad, Tip O'Neill was quoted as saying, I've never known any American who is nearly as popular as you. And Reagan mentioned, I connect with people. I try to form consensus. I have a set of core principles. I explain those, but I always try to do what I think is right for the country. Um, and we know, in my opinion, we no longer have that on either side. Um, 
And just personally speaking, I was uh, I was somewhat disappointed in that uh, first debate. I've spoken a bit uh, through Hoover with Asa Hutchinson. Um, I think he's a terrific old school politician. He's polling what one half, one percent, one quarter of one percent. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I met Tim Scott once when I was testifying to the Senate. Um, he's an impressive individual, but <clears throat> we're not. You know those 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 two those two men um, are not moving the needle and. Um, you know, it's I, I, we've talked many times about the concerns we concerns we have about California politics and the need for political competition. And I think everybody in the state, no matter where you are politically, should be desiring political competition. Yeah, we don't have it now. We're not going to get it tomorrow. And I really worry we're not going to get it anytime soon. Let's stick with abortion for a second. Um, Pete Wilson was reelected uh, governor of California in 1994. He won by about 15 points, a landslide. Uh, he actually captured uh, a majority of the women's vote in that election. He defeated Kathleen Brown, who was the state treasurer at the time, Jerry Brown's sister. Dan Lundgren comes along four years later. He is a very devout Catholic, went to Notre Dame, and he says up front that abortion is a central part of his campaign. He loses that race by about 20 points to Gray Davis, gets crushed among women. And I went and looked at the exit polls and did the math. About a million women changed sides in that election. They went from voting for Republican to a Democrat, and they just, with the exception of Arnold Schwarzenegger running for re-election in uh, 2006, Arnold, by the way, pro-choice like Pete Wilson was, um, those women have walked away. So how to get them back in California is the question. And here's why abortion is germane to what's going on with Republicans right now. Donald Trump did something really interesting the other day. He he is so confident where he stands in the primaries right now that he's already in general election mode and he's triangulating and he's triangulating in particular on the topic of abortion. And he went after Ron DeSantis very hard on DeSantis doing the six week uh, restriction in Florida and said that he's more open to something like a 15 week uh, restriction zone. And then in very Trumpian fashion said, I'll sit everybody down and we'll have a beautiful compromise, blah, blah, blah. Just just like he said, he fixed the Ukraine war one day. It's classic, classic Trump wishful thinking. But the point is that Donald Trump is doing something that uh, was considered heresy uh, and that he's willing to be much more flexible on abortion than Republicans have been in the past. Now, the backdrop for this, the reason why I'm droning on about this is because at this Republican convention in Anaheim, which is two days after the uh, presidential debate at the Reagan Library, um, there's going to be a conversation, we'll probably turn to an argument over uh, the Republican platform in California. In particular, there is a sentiment that they need to change the abortion language and basically take away their blanket opposition to abortion. This is a big move for California Republicans. Wouldn't it be interesting if Trump came to Anaheim? He scheduled a speech speak at Anaheim, and he talked to the party in very real politic terms about what it takes to win a national election in California and talked about being a little more open on this topic or not. But here's the problem. You know that Trump is going to be Trump at that convention, and he's going to go off about him being persecuted. He's going to go off about Joe Biden. And then the conversation is probably going to descend in a lot of issues that are problematic for California Republicans. Uh, talk about Biden impeachment, talk about government shutdowns and so forth. This gets back, Jonathan, to your original question about the Republican struggle in California. There are 18 congressional districts in 2020 that voted for Joe Biden, but also elected a Republican member of Congress. Five of them happen to be in Southern, in California, parts of California, and issues like impeachment, issues like the government shutdown, maybe even Hunter Biden to a lesser extent. I haven't seen polling on that lately. This is just not germane to what people want to see their member of Congress doing. People have pocketbook concerns right now. They don't want to get off on things like impeachment. So for the Republicans gathering Anaheim and moving forward into the election cycle, what's going to be the message? Are we going to be much more practical on the economic front? 
Or are they going to be much more interested in the red meat issues, which makes it very easy for Democrats in California to betray them as wild-eyed and out of control? So, Lee, we'll see if it's a teachable moment or not. Yeah, um, you know, Bill, if Trump is there, uh, as he would often does, he'll suck the he'll suck the oxygen out of the room, and it's going to all be about him. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, um, Republicans at the national level can choose to be relevant. And um, if they back off just the hard, the hard line, the line in the sand issue about abortion, um, I suspect they could probably pick up five or six points because when you look at voter demographics um, between men and women and those who are married uh, and not married, um, Republicans are either leading as they are with married men or are competitive with Democrats, as they are with um, married women and unmarried men. But, Bill, they are just overwhelmed um, in the unmarried women demographic. Um, right. They And if you um, and if there's a litmus test, then people aren't going to even listen to you about about issues such as the economy and the deficit and expanding job creation um, and all the other issues that politicians need to be so worried about because issues need to be so worried about. So it's really up to Republicans uh, at the national level um, whether they want to be relevant or not. And uh, in California, I think the first step to relevance is moving back from that line in the sand about abortion. And this isn't about um, this isn't about all the cultural and social and religious issues going to that. It's just about Do you want to be relevant? Do you want to have a chance to win um, or not? Uh, I, I, I see it just as simple as that. Yeah, final thought, then we'll move on to the next topic. Um, for as much as California is not germane to the presidential election, because, look, a Democrat could probably die two weeks before the election and still carry California, plain and simple, um, it is the epicenter for the next congressional battle because, as I mentioned, those five seats that voted for Biden in 2020, I think it takes, what, only four or five seats for the Democrats to flip the House. So a lot of money is going to be funneled into California. Uh, Lee and Jonathan, Nancy Pelosi saying that she's running for yet another term at age 83. Why? Because she wants to raise money to help flip the house. Um, I found that kind of sad personally, but that's another story, I guess, for another day. Anyway, um, it's going to be good to be a local uh, TV station in those districts in California come 2024 because there'll be a lot of advertising against the incumbents. So we'll see. But again, I think the convention is kind of a good litmus test as to how California is going to prepare for 2024. Bill, in your uh, show notes uh, for today, you utter words that are very rarely said, and that what that is, Lee was wrong. Uh, <laughs> you are you are referring to his September first California on Your Mind column, in which he said every major policy error I have observed has become worse in the last five years, including budget waste, the failure of politicians to prioritize what Californians want, the lack of oversight and accountability within state and local government, and a deepening of the costly symbiosis between state politicians and the political interest groups who lie at the center of nearly all of California's policy failures. And this nexus will preserve California's deeply flawed policy status quo until voters decide that they have had enough. Bill, how could Lee be possibly wrong about any of this? Uh, I want the author to tell us this. I mean, was the author having a bad day? Would he had? Would he? Did he have a toothache? Was he grumpy? What was going on here? Lee, really, every major policy error observed has become worse in the last five years. Um, <laughs> say it ain't so. Say it ain't so, Joe. <laughs> no, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm afraid the fix was in <laughs> with uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Um, 
Yeah, so Bill, we started um, we started writing this column uh, five years five years ago last month, and you know, when we when you and I discussed uh, you know how we could contribute to hopefully elevating the policy discussion within the state, um, you know, as an economist, I pay a lot of attention to economic policies, national and state. Um, I simply had no idea just how bad it was in California, despite being an economist and despite and despite uh, living in this state. Um, the amount of government waste, um, the amount of political mismanagement uh, that I found out about over the last five years is um, is simply mind boggling. And when I wrote every, every major policy I've observed became worse. Um, Yes, I wish that wasn't true, but uh, but it has. We have a so to begin with, we have a state budget that now exceeds three hundred billion dollars. That's twenty four. That's over twenty four thousand dollars per household. Um, mm -hmm. That should be delivering an awful lot of state government goods and services to people. Um, so, so, so Lee, I came into California government in 1994, the state budget that year, they were, um, it was in the forties, maybe $50 billion. Now I know inflation, blah, 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 but still 50 billion, yeah. then 300 billion now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Bill, was that 94? 94. Right. Okay. So in roughly 30 years, the right. budget has expanded by a factor of nearly eight within the state. Right. Um, yeah. How much economic growth has there been? So to deal with the issue of inflation, um, maybe a factor of three. Yeah. So we have a factor of eight versus a factor of three. And Bill, the um, the largest increases have been just in the last couple of years. Um, the budget was two hundred billion just five years ago. Mm -hmm. So. We've expanded the budget by 50% in just five years. And um, I often ask people, and if any of you out there have a have an example of how anything has gotten better, please send me an email. I would really like, I'd love to have it. It will make me less depressed about the state than I am now. And I don't think I could be even more depressed, but I need to, I need to be less depressed. Um, and when, you know, and so I'd looked, I've looked into that budget and what you see is, um, is just amazing mismanagement. So we can begin with state worker compensation. Um, the numbers ha the numbers haven't reported been reported for a couple of years, but in 2019, so before COVID, average um, state worker compensation, which includes benefits, um, was $143,000 per worker in 2019 among state government workers. That's more than twice as high as private sector workers. And that and that hundred percent pay gap, compensation gap, is too low because public sector pension contributions are understated. Uh, Prefunding of, of uh, retirement health benefits are included. There's other issues that go into making that calculation that would suggest um, indicate is even higher than a hundred percent gap. As I mentioned, the numbers haven't been done in a couple of years, but that compensation today is probably close to 160,000. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you ask yourself, well, what is it? What is it about public workers that they're getting paid over twice as much as private sector workers? Um, simply the fact, unions. Over half of state government workers are unionized. Take the California Highway Patrol, for example. Um, average compensation in the CHP, which bill requires um, the requirements, it's a low bar, 
no felony convictions, valid driver's license, and you and you graduated from high school or you have GED. And those are the qualifications. Average compensation is $209,000 per year. Mm-hmm. Now, Bill, to provide a little context for that, I looked at the national level among average compensation in all industries. The highest compensating industry in the country is public utilities. They have an awful lot of highly skilled people, including engineers, Um, $128,000. So the highest paying private sector industry is is still 40 is still only 60 percent of that in the public sector. Um, And you have. you know, it's not just overpaying, it's not just overpaying um, public workers. And that's not to say that public workers shouldn't be treated fairly, but there's no benchmarking of compensation within the public sector to the private sector, no meaningful compens- no meaningful benchmarking. And then you you look at you say, we got all this high-priced help here. Uh, are we giving them the tools to do their job correctly? Well, you know, we spoke a few minutes ago about the Employment Development Department who runs a 40-year-old mainframe computer with 70-year-old software. And they just they just burned up over $30 billion in fraudulent unemployment claims. Lee, let me let me add one little nugget here, which may actually turn into a Leo Hanian column, but will probably further convince you that how bad things are. Um, among the bills sitting on Governor Newsom's desk right now, we didn't get to this in the first segment, is Assembly Bill 1. So 1 is an important number. It is the first one out of the chute, and it expresses what is the you know urgency, what is the priority for the Assembly. AB 1 would propose the following. AB 1, Lee Jonathan, would allow legislative staff in the state capitol to form a government employee union. That means that the state employees who write and edit thousands of pieces of legislation every year and provide advice to elected leaders about those bills would become a special interest with businesses before the state. And there's a very ugly political side to this, too. The only reason really for AB1 is to turn legislative staff into a political force that could work to defeat legislators, even a legislative staffer's own boss, who could then turn around and then advance the hundreds of bills sponsored every year by labor unions. So, Lee, if you ask how we make matters worse, plain and simple, sign that bill. You're now unionizing, you know. You know, unionizing legislative aides. Yeah, unionizing legislative aides. Um, so again, let's go back to the theme of has anything gotten better in California in the last five years? Um, I keep looking. I keep saying no. Um, we now spend $128 billion on public K through 12. Um, that exceeds the entire state budgets of every state except uh, New York and Texas. If you put together Ohio, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania, you come up with um, about 35 million people, which is close to California's population, 39 million. Our state budget still exceeds the combined budgets of those states that have nearly our population. You would think we should have world-class education for spending that, Mm -hmm. spending that much money. Only 25% of our kids are proficient in national education standards, just 25%. And if, again, if you look at, um, if you look at minorities such as African-American kids, um, only about 12%, 12% are proficient in national standards. Um, and, you know, and I concluded the column talking about, well, why, do, why don't things get better? It's because there's simply not enough pressure on state politicians. Republican Party has uh, has dug themselves in a hole where they're irrelevant in the state. There's no competition. Um, uh, relatively few Democrats face any 
face any threat from uh, from from the Republicans. Um, and when I talk about sort of the political cozy nexus between politicians and their supporters, um, you know, and you mentioned Nancy Pelosi. Um, a lot of the people who are supporting Nancy Pelosi, extremely wealthy people, they send their kids to private schools. They don't have to worry about underperforming safe schools. Right. Uh, they don't worry about um, $6.50 gasoline. Um, I was driving to my office at UCLA the other day, and uh, I go past the Chevron station, and the 89 octane is at $6.50, uh, $6.49.9, and, um, and premium is at $6.69.9. Um, they can afford that level of gas, but they're probably driving an, an EV. Um, these issues just don't resonate at all with the supporters of state politicians. And then you have teachers unions and other self-interest groups that simply will fight any reform, tooth and nail, uh, even if it means modestly giving up some of the protections they have for horribly performing teachers. Most teachers are good. Most teachers are very effective. But there are some, the bottom 10% um, are not doing a good job. They tend to be in schools that are heavily Hispanic or heavily Black. Um, and those kids are suffering mightily. Um, so until voters decide differently, we're just going to continue down that road. And uh, I tried to close with a bit of optimism on this uh, in this column. I said, I hope when you know, I hope when we do our next five year retrospective, that all right voters did just that. I didn't say I don't see a path from here to there, um, but that doesn't mean one can't emerge. So um, the light at uh, the end of the tunnel question, I'm glad you raised that. So I had a pretty interesting Friday. I uh, My Friday included uh, going up to San Francisco and having lunch at Balboa Cafe, which is part of the Gavin Newsom uh, restaurant empire in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. So I had kind of a little bit of a Newsom uh, uh, encounter. He wasn't there, but just I was in Newsom land. And then I came back to the Hoover Institution that afternoon for a conference on federalism that was um, arranged by the uh, very esteemed Dr. Michael Boskin. And um, I made a point to go to that conference that afternoon, Lee and Jonathan, because one of the participants was none other than Jerry Brown, former Governor Jerry Brown, uh, the uh, Cincinnatus of uh, California politics, to seen as his kind of virtue of uh, public service, like Cincinnatus, he uh, comes out of retirement to go back into public service and uh, runs for governor in 2010, serves for two terms. Um, a friend of mine actually calls him Geraldus Maximus because he is this kind of very large figure in California politics. I was a little disappointed, to be honest, because I thought he's going to be there in person. I wanted to, to see him in person. Uh, a very funny aside is that uh, we had him on a hookup, and uh, the hookup went down. Uh, Governor Brown lives up in uh, Calusa County, which is a remote part of Northern California. And I don't know if this is a testament to Wi-Fi quality or the need to further to further advance economic development in those parts, but he could not get a connection to get to us for about 10 minutes. It was rather, here we are in California, storing the technology. Um but the point of this is that um, Jerry Brown spoke for about 30 minutes on what was going on in the state, and he spoke about some you know, state-federal balances. Uh, but at the end of it, he was asked about what it's going to take to fix California. And Lee and Jonathan, let me give you uh, three things, three, three notes that I took down here. First thing Jerry said was things won't change in Sacramento until there are more middle-of-the-road legislators. Uh, correct. 
the so-called mod squad uh, of Democrats who kind of rein in the party when it comes especially to uh, economic matters in California. His second point was that California needs less emotion and more beliefs when it comes to policymaking. His, in his estimation, just too many conversations, too many arguments in the state capital are just about raw emotion. People just aren't thinking through the, the merits of what it is they're talking about. And then he was actually uh, optimistic and he said that uh, one day, and here's his exact quote, reasonable people will rise to the occasion. Uh, Lee and Jonathan, this caught my interest in this regard. Um, he didn't elaborate who the reasonable people are. So I'd be curious as to who these reasonable people are. Would it mean a different breed of legislators coming in? Would it mean more recall elections, the public holding voters more accountable? Would it mean another Prop 13 grassroots-like revolt against the status quo? The one thing that he didn't talk about, um, and if I had the nerve, I might have asked him this, he left the governor out of the conversation. And this is one of the problems, plain and simple. And yes, I know we've dogpiled on Gavin Newsom a lot in this uh, podcast, but I'm going to take one more shot at him here in this regard. Jerry Brown famously said, Lee and Jonathan, that his philosophy to governing was what? Paddle left, paddle right. The canoe theory of politics. You paddle in one direction, you paddle in the other direction, ultimately you stay in the mainstream. This is not the case right now in California. You have a governor who's very beholden to his party's special interest. And in terms of moderation, in terms of kind of a more sensible policy approach, Lee, it ain't going to happen until we return to the days of paddle left to paddle right. Yeah, Bill, it's, it's uh, um, interesting about Brown. I, um, uh, so I joined that I joined that conference remotely, I, I, and I really enjoyed hearing the governor's, former governor's remarks. Um, you know, he's prickly. Um, he changes his mind often and sometimes substantially, Yes, but he's realistic. He's an old school politician. Um, I suspect he would do deals with Ronald Reagan if, 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 if that was the environment, I suspect he would do deals with, um, with Republicans because he understood that the point of being a politician is to get things done. And he understand that things either don't get done now in California, or if they get done, they're making matters worse for almost everyone. Um, and you know, uh, Bill, I uh, I never thought I would say, my God, I really wish Jerry Brown was back in office. But Bill, my God, I really wish Jerry Brown was back in office. And as you mentioned, the uh, the eight hundred pound gorilla in that uh, in that conversation he had uh, with that conference was. Um, the failure to talk about Gavin Newsom. And I think the omission of that discussion was about as big as anything he might be able to say. Um, Newsom is part of the problem. Uh, when Brown talks about, we don't need emotion, we need to have sensible policy options and we'll try to find one that works best. That's not Gavin Newsom right now. Newsom is all about bluster. He's all about emotion. He's more likely to, to rant about Abbott or DeSantis than he is to go to his Democratic colleagues and say, what are we going to do about homelessness that makes some sense? Because we spent over $20 billion in the last five years and homelessness has gone up by 50,000 people. Let's sit down and figure this out. But that's not that's not Gavin. Um, Gavin owes a lot of his political success to Brown, uh, to two Browns, uh, Jerry Brown and Willie Brown. Right. I can't imagine uh, that either one of those Browns um, is looking on Newsom's performance right now with all that much favor. Um, so yeah, I think Brown was absolutely right. And, and Bill, when you say, where are those, um, what did he call them? Reasonable people? Yeah, the reasonable people. Yeah. 
but he didn't. Uh, say, but he didn't say who the reasonable people are. I assume he was mentioning lawmakers, but you know, you could also say that's voters. Yeah, I, you know, Bill, I don't think he knew. I don't think he had no. thought that through. Um, and so those reasonable people are, are going to have to be voters. And what reasonable people means is that more voters are going to have to get better connected with why the failures in California are 99.9% policy related. They don't have to do with Trump. They don't have to do with Republican visions about abortion or immigration. They have to do with common sense issues. And um, until we can get 40%, Uh, forty percent of those voting to uh, to connect with that, um, it's going to be business as usual in California, and not business as usual as former Governor Brown would like to see it. Now, lest anyone think that we're beatifying Jerry Brown, he too um, had his shortcomings as a California governor. He uh, supported a so-called temporary increase in taxes in California uh, that was supposed to uh, go away after four years. And then guess what? He purposely stayed at it when lawmakers decided they really liked the higher taxes and wanted to stick with them. They did another ballot measure to continue it. The governor stayed out of the ballot fight whatsoever when he could have easily stood up and said, I said four years ago, this was temporary. By God, I mean it. No, he went along with it. Uh, Secondly, it's under Jerry Brown's watch. The California loosened up its parole standards, and so that's partially responsible for the crime wave we've seen, the nickel and dime property thefts and so forth, where people get out early. Um, So he wears that as well. Uh, Final note on Jerry Brown, though, if we're going to go along with superannuated politicians and keep reelecting people in their 80s and 90s, uh, Jerry Brown will be a tender 88 come 2026. So why not do it again? (laughs) Although I think you'd have to change eternal limits law to do it, but hey, (laughs) desperate times call for desperate actions, right? Jerry, uh, Jerry 3.0. There you go. 76, uh, 2012 and 2026. Yeah. Yeah. And Bill, you know, the, the, um, yes, he made some good decisions regarding pension reform. He wanted to do more. He couldn't get, he couldn't get the state legislature to go along with it. He couldn't get the legislature to go along with sequel reforms. Um, I don't know if he had pushed a lot harder, maybe he could have gotten more done there. Um, Regarding the extension of the 13.3% income tax, uh, that was egregious. At one time, I recall him saying this was meant to be a surtax. This was not meant to be permanent. But when push came to shove, as we got closer to November, yes, he was uh, he was very, very much silent on that. Um, so that definitely, in my opinion, goes in the, uh, the negative box for him. So, Jonathan, I don't know if your friends at the Nixon Library have the uh, uh, the copyright of the market on the Nixon tan rested and ready T-shirts, but uh, maybe we need to print up a few for Jerry Brown. I actually, I think they, I think they have that in the museum store gift shop. I, if I recall, I think they, I think they have a bumper sticker as well, and a few other, few other items. There you go, <laughs> uh, gentlemen. This has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Lee and Jonathan. Thanks, guys. Always good to see you, fellas. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institute podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst, that at, that's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo, Leo Hanian is also on Twitter at Lee underscore Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. 
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.